I'm Candy Marie. And I'm Mena Diaz, and welcome to the Moving Up Together podcast. Mena, let's talk about change. Now, it's one thing we can't escape. The ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus had some thoughts on it. He said, the only constant in life is change. And you know what? Maybe he was onto something. Think about all the changes we go through in life. We change careers, we change roles. Some of us even change responsibilities from worrying about yourself to taking care of children, to being caregivers for aging parents and relatives. We even see changes in our own beliefs. Seriously, Candy Marie, and we're constantly changing and growing. It's amazing how different we can be from our past selves. And uh, I'm glad I don't look like what I've been through. <laughs> okay. Come on. Come that, on. Right? Yes. As this change is, it can also be intimidating, sometimes even a little scary, um, especially when it pushes us out of our comfort zones. Uh, but here's the thing embracing change can also be incredibly fulfilling. And today, we have two amazing guests who have not only embraced change, but they also champions of it. Listen, Mena, I couldn't agree more. And speaking of these guests, we are joined by Lee Ann Twan. Her life changed drastically when she moved to the United States from Trinidad as a teenager. At first, she was hesitant to speak due to her accent. Now she proudly uses her powerhouse voice to advocate for her family and her Boston community. Also with us is my girl Portia. What's going on, Portia? Hey, she's guys. also hey girl. She's also a Boston mom in the midst of a, of a career switch, who is also studying to become a grant writer. Talk about embracing change head on. We just want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having us. Absolutely. Um, so let's start with kind of a little icebreaker here. So we like to ask each of our guests, what's something, um, people wouldn't know by just looking at you. So Portia, let's go ahead and start with you. I'm in actually a challenging situation right now. Um, I'm coming out of being homeless, me and my children. Um, if you, you know, sometimes certain situations and life challenges can get you down in the dumps. But I'm very like outgoing and bubbly because I just had to step out of fear and just into faith. And um, it's been working for me and I, I feel better. Despite the situation, I'm just, I just feel all right not worrying so much. So, wow. Yeah. Impressive. Thanks. Lee, how about yourself? I think anytime anyone sees me with earbuds on, they assume I'm listening to music, but I'm actually learning to speak French. Oh, so wow. I'm doing that. Like, yeah, every time they see me, they're like, oh, you know, what are you listening to? I'm like, I'm learning. So, or audiobooks. I'm always listening to audiobooks, all learning languages with headphones on. All right. So, we're off to an impressive start, ladies. Wow. Mena, I, I think it's safe to say that we have the best guests in the world on the Moving Up Together podcast. Like, so impressive. Um, and, and speaking of which, I wanna dive a little bit more into your story, Portia, let's start with you. You were born and raised in Boston. Um, you've lived there for a number of years. What keeps you both here? Honestly, um, I did at one point move to Connecticut, but because I didn't have anybody out there, it's just family. Um, my main support system is here in Massachusetts. Um, so that's why I'm here. I'm familiar with Massachusetts, Boston, so, and the times that we're in, I don't know, I'm a little nervous about 
exploring elsewhere, but again, I got to put that aside because you never know what can happen. But I just have my my main support system here. And like you said, there's so much on the other side of fear. You know, I just want to reiterate that. Um, and thank you for saying that earlier, you know? Yeah, um, no idea. Listen, listen. Well, you know what? I cannot wait for our listeners to find out because we're going to dive a little deeper into your story. Now, Lee, you've also lived here for a number of years. What keeps you here? Family. My mom is here. My brother is here. So I am here to support them. That's one of the main reasons why I'm still here. I love that. And Lee, you're from uh, Trinidad, correct? Yes, that's right. Yes, 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 yes. For people who don't know where Trinidad is, could you tell us where that is and what it was like coming from there to here? Sure. So it's in the Caribbean. I think the, clo- the closest countries to us are Venezuela on one side and Barbados on the other side. Um, it was a real culture shock coming here to the United States, particularly to Boston. Mm-hmm. Now there's like a real heavy West Indian community in Boston. But at that point, there were not too many um, teenagers. So it was the typical horror story of coming from an island, having a really thick accent, um, mm-hmm. being like that all the time for not knowing you know, how to say different things in this culture, not understanding how this culture works. So it was really an adjustment. But now it's a lot easier because there are more immigrants here. So we have blended. There's a greater blend now. So now everyone is proud to say you know, where they're from, as opposed to before it was more of a secret. Wow. That's just interesting tidbit to me. And I know people from Boston and New York are completely different. So please don't come for me. Um, but being so close to New York, that's super shocking because New York, you know, is is has so many immigrant communities from all over the place. And it's just such a mixing bowl of people. Boston was not like that when you when you arrived. And maybe that's a good segue for Portia to tell us what it was like growing up in Boston. What was that like for you? Um, for me, it was it was all right. Um, so I grew up in Boston, but I went to school in the suburbs. So it was kind of like I got the best of both worlds. Um, you know, I lived in an okay neighborhood. There was a lot of kids in my neighborhood. Um, community was kind of tight knit. Um, a lot of kids, a lot of going outside and trying to get home before the street lights come on, but just did a lot of playing and interacting. Um, school was fun. Um, predominantly, I went to a predominantly white school. Um, but you know, I blended in well. I didn't experience any type of like racism or anything like that. So I had a really good experience. Childhood was alright. So adulthood came, it was just challenging. <laughs> you know, it's just cause I, I don't know. I just, I had a lot of, I, I feel like I had a lot of freedom. I was into a lot of different activities. Um, a lot of team building, outward bound. I'm not sure you said you mentioned you're from New York, so I'm not sure if they have that in New York. But like a lot of different programs when I was younger. So I'm a team building um, fanatic. Like I love the togetherness. That's why I like fit with Up Together because that's, that's like my background. So. And you're studying um, to be a grant writer, correct? Mm-hmm. So h- how is that, given your situation, how has that transition been? I mean, obviously you're going through a major transition now. How does that? Play into your situation and, and trying to better your situation. Trying to better my situation, I always had um, I always had an idea of like a business or something I need to get get into to give back. But I wasn't sure like what. I don't know what. Like I really didn't really go through anything to like have that reason why. But 
be in the situation that I'm in and like this housing situation is crazy. Um, you know, but just the resources and support that I did have and received a blessing because it could have been worse. But I would love to give back. Um, you know, just how people were there for me and supporting me, like I gotta give that back. And that was a huge blessing because again, it could have been worse. I could have lost my mind, I could have totally different person but because of my community, my network. It was just like, thank you guys. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging. I want my nonprofit. I want to be able to help people. Um, so with the grant writing, it's like, I'm able to see all that's involved with having a nonprofit. It's a lot of work. Um, just going through the steps of the proposal, just being very specific and detailed, 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 detailed. You know, it's it's a lot of reading, writing, but it's very well worth it because you just, if you're able to re understand what you're reading and see the bigger picture, you know, it's, it's amazing. What is the one thing you would say is the importance of grant writing? Um, giving people the opportunity. If they see something that's a problem, you know, and they have the idea, they just need that extra support, that extra push to help to help them reach their goals. Like, I understand it now because sometimes, you know, people think, oh, it's, it's for the money, but no, it's actually for the experience, for the knowledge, you know what I mean? Putting people in a different environment. Like when I was younger, um, I was through a program for, for girls ages like I think seven to maybe 14, but they just took us out of the city and brought us to different places and gave us the experience. A lot of low income girls that were in, um, you know, not shelter, but, uh, foster care system. A lot of girls that didn't, you know, stuff like that. And they just provided a safe space for us to just see something different. Um, so yeah, it's always been like a soft spot for me. Yeah. And that safe space is important. You know, finding ways to serve and to reach across and to help each other is what helps to strengthen our, our communities. You know, that's what moving up together is all about. You know, I love that you are doing that as a grant writer. And I also love, um, Lee, um, what you're doing to become an attorney. I understand that a few years ago you were studying to become an attorney, um, but your, your career changed course. Um, so now as you work as a special education advocate, what prompted that shift? That's that's what I would I would love to know. Sure. So all of this started um, by having my daughter. She is 13 years old now. And it was maybe about seven years ago I, um, I got her diagnosis. She is autistic. Being autistic and being an autistic girl and being an autistic girl of color has many challenges. I have seen a lot of pushback from the system, which by design is not meant to help us in any form. And because of what I saw, because of what I saw other parents experience, that is what sparked my advocacy. So now I'm in a position to advocate for myself on behalf of her and also to empower other parents or caregivers to advocate for their loved ones. Because again, we're in a system here, despite having live in a state where we have the best healthcare, there's a lot of inequalities in that equality. So it's the best if you can get it. It's the best advocate. It's the best work for you. But it's not necessarily the best if you don't know what it is. 
So with that knowledge, I just wanted to take it a step further and um, represent because there's not too many people of color in the legal field when it comes to special education. And I honestly feel that there's a tsunami of diagnosis on the horizon for us due to COVID mm. where a lot of kids were not able to get neuropsych evaluations or testing. So now they're coming out of the woodwork with diagnosis, um, which was innately there all along, but just they weren't able to get it. So now there's upsurgence and the need is so great for advocates and um, especially for the legal services. So that's how I started. That's what changed my trajectory. My daughter's diagnosis is what made me make the switch. And real quick, when you say the system, you mean the medical system? The medical system, yes. And then also um, social security, like to navigate social security to get benefits for your child is a challenge. The medical system, the education system primarily is the most challenging because once you have a diagnosis for your child and you receive like an IEP, um, which is an individualized learning plan, then the, the trick is to get the school that would actually comply with the IEP, to make sure you have the services for the child with the IEP, to make sure that the child is actually learning on the IEP, to make sure the placement is correct on the IEP. So, you know, having a diagnosis is one thing, having an IEP is another thing, but having them work together is the, the dream, which is always the problem. That's interesting that you said that because my daughter, she was diagnosed with autism in 2021. And I recently just switched her school Mm-hmm. Because I didn't feel like she was getting what she needed out of it. Right. And that's the thing. And because, again, I think what a lot of people don't understand is for us to even get to that point of having a diagnosis is a challenge. So, you know, you receive the diagnosis, but then you're like, okay, what does this mean? You know, how does my life change? You know, what can I do for my child once I receive the diagnosis? And again, under the guise of like, you know, inclusion and, you know, public school and so forth. Um, with its position is that they want the best for your child. But in reality, that's not the case. They gave you, they will continue to give you the bare minimum unless you advocate for more. So this is what a lot of parents, um, you know, have been faced with that reality because, you know, they assume that, you know, well, I have an IEP, you know, these IEP says, you know, certain things this child should have and I'm going to get it. And the school is like, yeah, but in reality, it's no. So having that voice to even know that what you're entitled to versus what you actually receive is what makes you an advocate for your child. And taking that one step further, once you empower yourself to do that, then you can empower others to speak up. And and I think you said something key, Lee. Sure. Once you advocate, once you yes. advocate, you know, yes. and yes. I just want that the, all parents listening right now, we need more parents using yes. their voices and advocating. Yes. You know, I'm tired of seeing the TV raising our kids. I'm tired of seeing the teachers, quote unquote, everybody's raising our kids but us, but we are the ones that need to speak up and advocate. So what you just said, literally, I wanted to stand up and do backflips because <laughs> that <laughs> we have yep. to advocate for our children, especially our brown and our black children. They need us. They need to see us advocating. Like they need to physically see us fighting for them. Here's the thing with that, right? It's a really fine line with advocacy. And I'll explain mm-hmm. to you what that means. Because most of the times when you are passionate about ensuring what your child has, 
it gets lost in translation. Your passion looks like you are confrontational, you're argumentative, you're hostile, you're ungrateful to a certain degree because the way that it's looked at is okay, we are giving you the bare minimum and what you should do in this position is accept it. So, you know, you should never be in a position to say, this doesn't sit well with me. Like, you know, I don't think this is enough OT, PT, or speech for my child. I don't think this is what this is. So it's a delicate balance as to how you phrase the advocacy, because what happens is that you get a lot of pushback and resistance from, you know, the school, resistance from the system, because again, by design, you're not supposed to ask for more. Could you give us an example of, um, of a pushback that you got? Sure. So, um, so let's say this is how it works. So your child is in school and your teacher would say to you, you know, the classic script, we have some concerns, you know, based on the behavior that we've seen, um, we're kind of concerned about that. So you meet with them and they would say to you, you know what, um, based on what we've seen, you know, we would suggest that the child have like a neuropsych evaluation. And what that is, is a complete evaluation, which is like an educational assessment, a behavioral assessment, a classroom assessment to see, you know, if, if this child is learning in this environment, if there are any um, disabilities possibly that hasn't been diagnosed, and what do we do? And if this is the right placement for the child. So you'd say, okay, fine. So you go, you wait for a very long time, maybe up to a year and a half for a complete neuropsych evaluation. You subject the child to all types of testing, you receive the reports, you go to the school and you say to them, okay, fine, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I have a complete neuropsych evaluation. Here's the report. The pushback from the school is, um, this wasn't done in house because the school professionals were not the one to conduct the neuropsych evaluations. Yeah, once you receive the, the evaluation and they tell you, because you use an outside party, they tell you they're not comply. Wow. That is kind of backwards, <laughs> right? Like that sounds super backwards. It is. It is. It is. But by design, um, the way it works is that the school wants like full autonomy and authority to make those decisions. And as a parent, you're entitled to a second opinion. This is why you have an independent evaluation done. But the school doesn't want to support that because what happens there is that the independent evaluation is going to require the school to do more than they're prepared to offer you. And that's the problem. Well, you know what? I, I appreciate that you're, I, I just feel the energy that I feel in Minna and Portia, maybe you guys can agree with this, but I, I love your energy because it just seems like a, I'm not going to let up. I'm going to keep doing whatever I can. And, you know, there's so many examples of that. And I think one of the examples that we have is, you know, we hear that you dedicate your time and your resources to cooking for children in your community, in your neighborhood. Yeah. You know, so again, this is you saying, I'm not going to let up. I'm going to do everything I can. And I think that's a great example of that. Could you tell us more about how this came to be and what impact um, you are seeing from showing up? and 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 leading that type of initiative in your neighborhood sure so i think what most people most people see a problem and to me they address it the wrong way and so far as most people put band-aids on the problem they don't address the root cause of the problem so every time i'm faced with a situation i look at it from a holistic approach 
okay? Kids not being able to eat stems from a bigger issue, which is more than them not having access to food. That's a real, a bigger issue. The underlying issue for that is you need to find out what's the disconnect in the household and what services are needed to provide that in the household. But in the interim, you meet them where they are. So if it means you're in an after-school program to make sure that they have food, if you're in a community center to make sure that they have food, if you do a program like Backpack 48, which is a program that gives them 48 hours worth of food on the weekend to take home to make sure that they actually eat because some kids only eat at school. So if you step in for those type of services while you investigate as to what the underlying causes are, you're still working towards the end goal, which is the holistic approach, which is to make sure that the child is well-rounded and the child, all the child needs are met versus just saying, you know, you have been, your mom gets benefits for you. This person gets benefits for you and being judgmental. No, I don't look at it that way. There's a need and you deal with that need and you get to the root cause to change the entire environment. And Portia, you faced a similar situation with your child as well with pushback from educational system, medical system, or all of the above. So for the school and actually at when I when I went to her um, doctors, I'm asking for outside resources other than just school that I can bring my daughter to because she has speech challenges. So initially, we went to a private um, a private facility, but they took my insurance. Ooh. But because I'm under state government insurance or whatever, they don't accept it. So then you don't have access to that private one-on-one, which my daughter needs, because right now she's in a, she was in a classroom, you know, with other people. And I don't even know how often she had her speech therapist. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't, it it was, there was just the communication between the school and myself. It made me feel uncomfortable. I don't know anything that's going on. I'm asking questions, but I'm still not getting the information that I need. She comes home every day and she's so happy. She's so happy. She's a, I love my school. You didn't say that before. Aww. She just started this week. I love my school. That's a great sign. I felt the energy in the school and it was always off. But because of my situation, I really didn't have many options. I had to just kind of take what was presented to me at that time. So I did that. But once everything, you know, started to yeah. align accordingly, that call came in from that new school and we were right there. Have faith that it works. I'm telling you, mm. it really does. Well, I want to go back to what you said because of your situation. I could so relate to that. You know, growing up, I was one of those kids that felt like because of my situation, you know, I felt like I was at a huge disadvantage. Um, did ha- Like, honestly, can you peel back the layers on that for just a second? Let's create a human moment. Like, how did that make you like, I really want to know. Terrible. So, all right, if you want me to go into the story, I'll be open. So I, there was a falsified restraining order placed against me by my son's father because he felt like, you know, she's a little smart. We can't let her get away. So, you know, he did that. My son was taken away from me in front of my daughter, which traumatized her. Um, and we were living out of a hotel for a little bit. And... Um, 
I had to remove her from the school that she just got comfortable in. So when we did that, because um, I was living in this area called Stoughton, so I had to move from Stoughton to, I had to transition from Stoughton to Boston. And I didn't really know anything about being in Boston like that. I mean, not as an adult, as far as like getting into schools and things like that, because my daughter didn't go to um, daycare. She stayed home with me and stayed home with my grandmother. Um, and then at one point I was living out in Connecticut, but when COVID happened and I had got pregnant, I moved back down to Boston, um, with my son's father and so in, and it was just crazy from then. But yeah, she, she experienced her mom like being so emotional as much as I tried to like hide it from her, you know what I mean? But she could, she could tell. So that she was very like loving. Both of my kids were very loving during that time because it was very, very difficult. Because I'm trying to figure out not only for myself but for them, so they're not seeing me so down and out. And I'm just trying to put all the pieces together. Um, but I mean, you know, I've always made sure that um, we went to museums and playgrounds so that way they could still have fun because it was just tough. And then being in a shelter, you have to be. Um, you know, and a certain time and we had to sleep on cots and stuff like that. And them having to see that, that broke me. I'm like, no, I can't. This is something, whatever this is, we've got to make sure that we, we just never revisit this again because it broke my heart to see that because of whatever, my kids kind of have to suffer for it. That's not fair. So you had a journey and sometimes we hold back from telling our stories when I can't. we all have so much like that we can share and we can really lean on each other. But let's talk about the resources. What kind of resources do you think, you know, have made or would have made this transition easier? Like, how did you get out of that rut to where you are now? Up Together, a lot of the women in Up Together, men too, everybody, like everybody's just sold down to earth lead like everybody just has something unique to bring to the table so even though i was going through it emotionally on the inside just listening to other people what they've gone through and just seeing how they overcome certain things and just obtaining the, the the information and the knowledge just being a little sponge it just helped me from losing my brain because if you know if other people can do it and i'm sitting at the table with them that means that i can do it too i just can't let myself lose that mindset i can't have a poor mentality like you know i can't let anything deter me from the goal the goal is to find some stability you got to figure it out you got to do the lake work you got to talk to people ask questions like before i was a quiet person i didn't really i i, I talked when i needed to talk but now it's like i can't even help it it's just like it flows naturally and i'll talk all day now you feel safe exactly i feel safe i feel safe I feel like I let a lot of emotions and fears go. What is the worst that can happen? I've already been rock bottom. People tell me no, like that's the worst that can happen. I love that saying. It's like, just ask, what's the worst they can say? One bit of advice this lawyer said to me while I was going back and forth through court, which is a headache. Like, I don't know if anybody ever experienced that, but going back and forth through court, fighting over ch a child, you know, that is just draining. She was just like, you got to take the emotions out of it. That's what you got to do. Take the emotions out of it. I'm an emotional person by nature. I'm a Pisces. I cry. She was like, mm-mm, mm-mm, they're going to use that against you. 
be nice, be be kind, don't don't lose yourself. But just take the emotion part. It's only gonna it's only gonna slow you down. For our producers listening, that's actually a another great topic that maybe one day we can talk about with just court systems in general and going through the system, the legal system and what that looks like for various cases and all kinds of things. Cause that is, yeah, it is, ha, that is a, a whole thing and a half. Gratitude. I'm very thankful. I said it could be totally different, but it wasn't. To me, Portia, hearing what you're saying, and I wish we were in contact closer because I know we had COVID and everything. And the last time I saw the baby was a baby. But um, I think one of the things we learn from these experiences, we learn to compartmentalize, right? And again, as I was saying with what you said, like taking the emotions out of it, this is another thing that teaches you advocacy because we're so passionate, but it gets lost in translation that it looks different on us, right? Being women of color. So now you know how to do that. You know how to separate like your feelings from it. So it's not gonna cloud your judgment. Like I said to myself, moving forward, this tone that I'm speaking in now, yes. that's how I'm going to talk. Right. That's how I'm going to talk for the rest of my life, just like this. It's clear, it's simple, it's straight to the point. It doesn't feel like I'm coming at you anyway, because that could have been part, maybe one of my lessons. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't take things that happen to me, you know what I mean, as, oh, why this happened? It could have been some underlying lesson that, like you were saying, that I didn't know that I was doing. You know what I mean? It, it made, not saying that it was my fault, but had I known just a little bit better, it could have been a different situation. That's all. You know what I mean? But it exposed a lot. I want to say that. It exposed a lot about myself. And then once that happened and I was able to get an environment where it was just me and then have my me time, solitude, the quiet, the peace. I can just tap into my thoughts and just figure things out. I wouldn't have changed anything. It it was the worked out the way it was supposed to work out because I'm like aligning exactly where I need to align. All that happened, and now I'm here on a podcast. It's interesting. I love that you brought up um, kind of a a sense of um, um you had a play a part to play in it as well because a lot of people we we try to heal from even past experiences and things that we learned or we've seen growing up and we don't realize we're carrying it with us um and i remember reading something where it said um it's not necessarily how you say something to someone it, it's how that person interprets it you know so you might be saying something without meaning anything but the other person doesn't interpret it in that in such a manner you know and that when i remember reading that and thinking my approach to people changed, it shifted after that uh, because it made me a little calmer in the sense of like, I don't need to get defensive. I just need to either further explain or, you know, and especially in your situation where you were dealing with so many people scrutinizing you as far as like, well, she's this and how she is a mother and how is she at home. And I can only imagine what that, Let me tell you. that I don't want to call it a circus, that circus of lawyers and everything. I can't even imagine what that was like for you. It was crazy. And on top of that, I just got off out of back surgery. So it's been, um, I know it's been the, the, the challenging past since COVID. I kid you not. And I'm like, sometimes I don't want to say too much because I feel like sometimes people won't believe me because I don't look like what I've been through. <laughs> like 
I can still laugh and smile and be happy and root you on and give you some advice. Like, you know what I'm saying? I mean, there were certain things that was trying to take me out, but it can't take me out because I'm very, I have a different heart and I have a different mindset. So, and being a part of like up together and being around individuals like me, like it only helps. It helped me. Like I, I say this to people, you guys don't even know how much it helped me. Just sometimes just sitting back, just listening. I don't even have to say anything. I just got to listen. And I just know that there's a brighter light at the end of the tunnel. Like don't even, don't even trip. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And up together is one of those lights, right? Up together Ever is since I joined. <laughs> <laughs> so let's take a moment and let's think about our time with Up Together. You know, you both participated in the group's experience where you intentionally set goals with your group. What did you learn from that experience of setting and achieving goals? And why is it important for you to continue those actions today? Um, I think the first thing is I learned accountability. Being in a group setting and setting a goal means that you have someone else in the group that's going to keep you on task. So you have accountability partners, right? In our groups, that's what we had. So if your goal was, let's say, to save $500 by a certain time frame, you had someone that would constantly check you to say, what's going on with your savings? Do you need to buy that? So being in that environment versus saying, you know what, I'll get to it when I get to it, um, made it so much easier. And I think what happened with that is that we found um, community because all of us were working towards goals individually, but being in a group experience amplified that appreciation for us completing these goals, which only made you more relentless to achieve more goals. So that was one of the things. So we, we use our strength collectively to say, okay, we did this. What's next? We, we know we could do this. We mastered this. What else can we do? So it started off with small things like saving money. Some people's goal were to buy houses and they did it. So that's the good thing about being in a group setting versus setting goals by yourself. <laughs> you took all the words out of my mouth. Like, that was perfect. Perfectly said. <laughs> perfectly said. No, you're absolutely right. Like this. Just being able to come together and think about how you can better yourself and better your community. What what can we bring and do and bring to the table to help our community flourish? How can we give back? Like, and we just we sat around, we threw ideas at each other, and you know we made things work. We put a plan in action. We made it work, and it was a success. So it's like, wow, we did that. You know, we were just talking about it and planning it, you know, despite whatever is going on in each other's lives, we still came together, sat down, and we identified a goal and we executed it. And then I think one of the other things, too, is like the techniques. You know, some people are like really good in certain things, but unless you put them in that environment, you won't know that. You know, some people could actually Correct. show you how to get to these goals a lot faster. So being expressive and vocal about this is what I want to do, you know, it's almost like someone's going to say to you, you know what, you're my little apprentice. I've already done that. So I could show you how to do that. And once you finish with that, I could show you the techniques to get other things done. So there was a lot of wisdom in our groups, too, because you had some people, you know, they have that level of mastery when it comes to the goals you wanted to accomplish. They did it. You know, they're living proof that they could do it. So you're like, oh, well, it's not 
impossible or unattainable because you did it. So you show me how to do it and I'll do it too. And Lee, I just want to touch on this real quick. You had made mention um, in one of our pre-conversations that you felt a shift after COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, You feel like your surroundings kind of went and your community kind of went from a me, me, me mentality to an us mentality. Um, And that was as a result of COVID showing us how frail we were as a society. And do you still believe that? Do you believe that that is just a local thing? Do you, or are you, do you feel you're starting to see that um, more nationwide now, as you have conversations with different people or people in your groups that come from different places? I see it as a ripple effect, if I had to explain it um, in that respect, because what COVID showed us at that point in my view is um, it shows us that we needed to love ourselves more, to be accountable more, to look out for each other more. Because you had situations where if you didn't see someone for like a week or two, you asked the question, how's this person doing? And that person died two weeks ago because of COVID, right? And we were in situations you, you, you couldn't even go to funerals during the height of COVID, right? right? So you, you come out of it and you look around for other people and you're like, I haven't seen this person in a long time. What's going on with them? But we couldn't say anything about it and we couldn't have the closure for it because of COVID. So now we're in a different space to say, you know what? I need to check up on this person all the time. Like I need to find out what's going on with you because we realize how fragile life is. And we also realize how broken we were in the sense that we made time for everything else but human connections. When COVID shut us down, we realized that we need to do better. You know, we need to take life more serious, right? The dates more serious, the time more serious, family time more serious, girlfriend time more serious. So now we know that. So we make it as a priority. We shifted the work-life balance. Now it's life balance as opposed to work-life balance. So I believe it's continuing that ripple effect. And I think it's manifesting in different ways where there's like more sister circles, girlfriend groups, you know, people are more involved and more accepting when it comes to, you know, like special, especially in the special um, education community, you know, more people are more open and vocal to say, you know, yeah, my child is also disabled. Like, okay, I could get that out. Um, what do I do? You know, help me, help me figure this out. Like, you know, I need help to figure that out. So yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is a ripple effect and it's, it's grown and it's amazing to see it grow. And never be scared to ask for help. Because the worst thing that you, you can do is not say anything at all. People just walk by that. You don't know right. nothing. That's valid. Right. What COVID did for us, especially people of color, it shifted the mask. Because, you know, we were under the guise of, you know, we're all the same. Right. For a lot of people, you know, they just collectively like, you know, oh, you live in Boston and Boston has so many great services and resources. You can't want for anything because you live in Boston. But in reality, um, it's like that zero sum effect. You know, where some people know about resources and they know it and they know that you need it, but they're not going to say it to you because they're under the impression if I told you where I get these Christmas gifts for my kids, it means I'm not going to get it. So what I'll do is I'll listen to you say you need it, but I'm not going to tell you about it. So now it's a different system where like, you know, we make sure that each other is good now. Like, you know what? I know about this. Let me, let me help you get this. You know what I mean? Because we realize now that it's only us. Like the only person who's going to save us is us. No system could save us. We need to save ourselves. And Portia, experiencing homelessness for you, 
asking for help. How was that with people now, you know, and especially again, the post COVID world? I was the type of person that was like, all right, I'll do it myself. Or like, I kind of had an attitude. And maybe I think COVID kind of like, oh, you got an attitude? All right, we're going to show you how you're going to handle that attitude. But yeah, I was just like, <laughs> I never really liked to ask for help. I never really liked to bother people because I feel like I can already do it on my, I could do it on my, by myself. I could do it on my own. <laughs> but, <laughs> you just so, made a like, face. <laughs> I actually had COVID. Like, I'm telling you, the past, couple of years terrible i had covid and my my i was so bad that like when i got to the hospital my breathing was declining my brain was so gone like i don't know if anybody has ever had covid that thing wiped me out like it was just you know who who are you that's not who you are like i literally my brain i felt like i forgot who i was <laughs> like where am i and it took me so long to go back to normal i knew that i was not normal i felt it I, I felt like I couldn't think straight or anything. It was just like, I don't know what to do right now. I don't know. I'm not going to play like I know what to do because I don't know. I'm not even going to fake the phone. I'm going to cry. It's, I can't help it. Look, I, I can't help it. It's just, that's just how I'm, that's how I'm feeling. I, I can't fake it. I won't be able to fake it. I can't fake it no more. You don't have to I, fake it anymore. <laughs> I, I can't fake it no more. I'll, I thought I was so strong and so this and that, but it was just like, no, you need to humble yourself a little bit. It's okay. It's okay to ask for help. It's all right. You don't know everything. Mm -hmm. All right. Just go ask. People are probably more than happy to, to let you know how to do things and tell you stuff. And I was thankful, you know what I mean, to not have a closed mouth to be like, no, I need you to help me with this. Mena, it's about that time. We have... One of our favorite segments right now, it's called Free Game, where it's an opportunity for you ladies to speak directly to the gatekeepers, speak directly to the lawmakers, uh, the people that are standing in the way, you know, that are creating challenges for working families in Boston. If you could look them right in the face and address them, you know, to put a plan in action or to create change, what would you say? I, I want you guys to be intentional. I want you to be direct. We're talking to the lawmakers, the leaders, the doers, the gatekeepers. You know, what what sort of challenges do working families in Boston face? And how do you believe lawmakers can address them effectively? Ooh, that's a real mouthful. Um, I think accepting and acknowledging the challenges starts the conversation. Stop band-aiding stuff and let's just really get down to the to the nitty-gritty and to the real issues. Um, underlying traumas, like people need to you need to heal. Uh, you can you can do X, Y, and Z, but if you're not right on the inside, you know, it's gonna be very, very challenging. So if we can figure out how we can come back together, connect a little bit more, um, direct cash housing stuff it's challenging I, I put you know money together and develop more um properties you know like for my situation because the shelters there's a waiting list for shelter there's infinite amount of land and property that's just all around here like why where's the disconnect like how come we're not implementing x y and z to to build more housing for, you know, women in transition. I would love to do that because the shelter that they put us in, 
you know, the, the living conditions. It wasn't, you know, all that. There was a lot of health concerns with that. Make it a little less challenging. Teach people how to be financially stable and financial literacy so we know how to manage money when it comes and certain things like that to just help us progress. Um, there's resources, but it's like if you don't know somebody that's involved with the resources, it's like it's kind of hard. Why do you think it's so hard for people to access these programs? You're, you're absolutely right. I didn't know about like certain organizations that can help with certain different types of resources. The only reason why I knew that is because I became homeless. And when you're homeless, those are the particular programs that you have. But like, you know, I, it's, it's like, I can see why not a lot of people know about it because you don't want to give, you know, all the resources away, which sounds crazy, but that's a really hard question. That is a really hard question. And also too, I'm not going to just, you know, have it fall on lawmakers. Sometimes our mentality, we get stuck in a mindset where we think that we're very limited when actually we're really not as limited. You just have to um, put yourself in a position to figure out how you're going to obtain that information. But yeah, that's a great point. Cause I, I was just wondering that cause in our previous interview, uh, our guests said the same thing where there's not a lot of accessibility. You remember Candy Marie? Cause they were saying they're like, well, we need more access that the programs are there. So that's what made me think, I'm like, why, why isn't it easier for us to find out about these programs, so to speak? And, and you made a good point because I remember when I was a kid, the only reason why my mom knew about certain programs, um, especially when I was younger, was because she ended up becoming friends with, um, with someone who worked at Social Security. We, they met through church and they ended up becoming friends and she was the one who would call her she's like hey i'm signing you up for this i'm signing Jimena up for that i'm you know and that was the only reason outside of that my mom would have had no knowledge of it was a situation where my mom needed the help candy marie what about for you dealing with the foster care system how is that when you're transitioning out of it into the adult world like do they give you how is the resources for you guys in particular like how does that work it, it, it depends on the state it's state to state. Oh, okay. It's so interesting because, uh, and, and Portia, you don't know this about me, but I grew up in the foster care system my entire childhood. And um, in the state of Florida, you know, it, it, it's just, now it's just, even, even the way that children are put into the system and the agencies and the, the type of, I, I can't even wrap my mind around it. But what I do know is like, I went to, I went to college on a free ride because of broken foster care. Where my state, that may not be the issue. Like in California, I do a lot of advocating here in California and it's the same thing in California. I know in this state of New York, they offer um, free therapy all the way up until the age of 21. Really just depends on the system that is put into place. And it depends on the people that are advocating in that system. Like literally, like I was just having a conversation with somebody today. It just seems so difficult until you find somebody that knows, right? So it just, again, these systems are just different and it just, it just really depends. 
First of all, we want to just thank both Lee and Portia for, for being here with us today. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Powerful conversation. Wouldn't you agree, Mena? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely powerful. Um, your journeys are a testament to the potential within each of us to rise above challenges and make a real difference in our own surroundings. You're also a reminder that change is real and change can unlock real impact for each of us. So again, we appreciate you and we thank you for taking the time for joining us both here today. Moving Up Together was created by the national nonprofit Up Together and produced by Creative Differences. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.